Thank you very much. Please take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. We're continuing our series this morning, as you heard, through the book of 1 Peter on God's steadfast exiles. God's steadfast exiles. And as we have come to expect from this densely packed letter, even two verses are loaded with enough spiritual truth and nourishment to feed for our souls to feast on this morning. So as God's people, let's lean in, remembering and rejoicing that we get to hear God's authoritative voice speaking to us today. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And glorify God on the day of visitation. And may God send his spirit to grant each of us the gift of illumination today. Well, Bridger Walker has always believed, and see if you're a big brother or big sister right here, raise your hand. Adults too. Big Bridger Walker has always believed that being a big brother is a huge, huge deal. And I'm sure I, I was the youngest in our family, so I didn't get to have that experience. But I know each of you here can, can relate to Bridger. You know what it is to be, uh, it's a big deal that you get to be an older sibling. And it was such a big deal to Bridger. They said that when his baby sister was born, he wouldn't let anybody take her off of his lap. So they'd come to take her off. They laid her in his lap. They'd come take her off. He'd say, no way, I'm, I'm keeping. This is my baby sister. So he was going to take care of her. And so they weren't surprised. His family wasn't surprised. They were saddened, but they weren't surprised in the least when this brave little six-year-old boy in Cheyenne, Cheyenne, Wyoming, he recently stepped in front of a dog who was trying to attack his sister. They were on a walk, and this dog came to attack them. He stepped in front, pushed her out of the way, and took the brunt of the dog's attack, his, the teeth. And it took 90 stitches to close the wounds on his face and on his neck. But even in the middle of the pain, Bridger courageously told his aunt, I thought one of us was going to die. And so I thought it might as well be me. You're the big brother talking there? It might as well be me. And over the past several weeks, his heroic act has garnered so much media attention, even social media attention, that actor Chris Evans actually sent him a, an authentic Captain America shield along with an Instagram message that said, buddy, we need more big brothers like you. And that's a sentiment I wholeheartedly agree with. We need more big brothers who say, what a privilege it is to be an older sibling. Now imagine if Mr. Walker, young Mr. Walker, didn't have any idea, he didn't realize what a big deal it is that he gets to be a big brother. Imagine that. Imagine if he had not realized that, his sister most likely would have paid with her life. 
But embracing that privilege is the thing that made all the difference. It caused him to act when it mattered most. It was the, is what she needed and what he did because he knew that's who I am. I'm her big brother. And Peter wants us to make that same kind of connection in this passage. The church, we've heard about it this morning. We've sung about it. The church must see and embrace her identity in Christ And that's why he took them up, and we read of these verses today. He took them up on the mountaintop in verses 9 and 10 so that they can take that in. They can understand who they are and so that they can grasp the overwhelming spiritual stature that they now hold. They need to grasp the overwhelming spiritual stature they now hold. It's not a stature that they will hold in the future at some moment, but it's a stature that they have received now. And so he tells this unimpressive beleaguered band of believers that they are part of the chosen race. They are the royal priesthood. They are now a holy nation, a people that God has created for his very own possession. That's who they are. And it's who we are this morning, even as we sit here. And Peter wants to fix that view in our gaze. That understanding, he wants to lodge it in our mind. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. And as that lodges deeper and deeper into our hearts and our minds, it begins to dislodge our old patterns and our old way of thinking and living. And beginning in verses 11 and 12, he's going to begin to start calling them towards living that out. To begin to push some of those old patterns of thinking and living out so you can begin to live out who you are rich privilege, the rich spiritual stature that we have. And here's the most surprising secret about that particular way of thinking. The new life, our new way of life that we have received. Living that out is the thing that the world most needs us to do right now. It's important that we catch that. Embracing that and living in the glory of our shared identity in Christ is what will make all the difference in the end. Peter believes that the most urgent need our world has right now is for the church of Jesus Christ to increasingly become who she already is in him. And in the face of the last six, eight months, all the things we've walked through, that's easy to forget, isn't it? It's not immediately at the forefront of our minds often. As we witness pain, as we turn on social media and see division, as we hear people talk about in our workplaces or in our families and the confusion that they're dealing with, it's tempting to either become one of two things, to either respond in such a way that we get overwhelmed and we give up altogether, thinking, what in the world difference can I make? Or... We get so worked up that we jump headlong into the fray. If you're like me, sometimes you can have both of those reactions in the same hour. Give up and then jump in. You relate to that. But neither of those responses is the scriptural solution. Because neither of those is living out our identity that we have received as the church in Christ. They don't reflect who we are. Now, the scriptural solution in this moment is so much more enlivening, it's so much more glorious, it's so much more powerful than anything that we could have come up with on our, on our own, and it, and it is what we, Peter wants us to help us understand this morning. 
Scriptural solution is what he's pointing us to. The greatest difference we will make right now is to increasingly live out our gospel identity. That is that simple. And it's the crying need of our moment. And 2020 didn't create that need. It only exposed that need all the more. The greatest difference our church is going to make right now is to increasingly live out our gospel identity. And practically, there are two ways in this text that Peter is calling us to begin doing that. These are the two points of our message today. Two ways that we live this out practically in daily life. We live out our gospel identity. We embrace it by, one, waging war against our selfish passions. That's in verse 11. Waging war against selfish passions. And then in verse 12, the second point, living beautifully amidst false accusations. Living beautifully amidst false accusations. We look at that first part together. The greatest difference we can make right now is to wage war against our selfish passions. Notice how Peter starts this section, this verse. Look down there in verse 11. He addresses them as the beloved. That's there at the beginning of the verse. Do you see that? It's a clear marker connecting the commands that he's about to give them, the thing he's about to call them to, back to the status that they have received. That's what that word is doing. That's their identity. It's not only him saying, I love you. It's helping them see who they actually are. They are those who have been loved by God, who have received mercy. So for Peter, this isn't a new thought. He's not changing directions. This is a continuation. He's helping them see this is the continuation of what I was saying. This is the next logical step. This is who you already are, and therefore this is who you should increasingly become like. And first call, the first call, this, this, this was set me back this week. I had to spend some time in prayer over this. The first call that he wants them to hear in embracing that identity is an urgent need to wage war against our natural self-centered pattern of living. That's the first thing he calls them to. It's the first commands. You are new, so therefore become new. Don't conform back to the old. And it doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian or if you have been a believer for decades. The need is still urgent. Listen to how he describes it. I urge you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? Because they wage war against your soul. This is not simply a change in behaviors, altering our behavior, how we do things slightly. No, this is... This is a deeper than that. This is, goes to the passions, the desires of who we are. And behavior matters significantly. We're going to talk about that in the next verse. But, but our passions are going to determine our behaviors. What, we are a people who are wired to do what we most want to do. And if our selfish passions, desires, if our selfish desires of life If we allow those to go unchecked, then the fruit of behavior that starts to grow on the branches of our lives is going to show up everywhere. Listen to the kind of fruits that spring up from fleshly passions. This is a sample list that Paul gives in Galatians 5, but listen to the kind of fruits that start to come out of who we are. He writes in chapter 5, verse 19 of Galatians. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, 
sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, that list is the kind of fruit that grows if we allow, if we allow the roots of unchecked selfish desires to have their way in our life. Doesn't matter if what we are, what we claim to be, if we don't, if we don't go to war against those selfish patterns of life, this is what will show up. And that's what needs to wake us up. We need to be woken up from, in this way because he says at the end of this verse, he says, if this goes on unchecked, I warn you, as I warned you before, same thing that Peter's saying, wake up, don't be asleep. Those things are like huge warning flares shot across the bow of our lives. They try, those should be a moment to say, realize we are at this moment engaged in a spiritual war. The original word that Peter uses here for waging war, is a, it's a military term. That's the way it would have been understood back then. It would have referred to more of a calculated, strategic kind of warfare. Not so much the in-the-moment skirmish, but how you would lay out and devise a battle plan. Now imagine that most of us here would have some kind of awareness, we should have some kind of awareness, that there is an enemy we have in this world, and he is a scheming enemy. That is for sure. Certainly we know from experience and from other places in Scripture that there are wicked forces, there are evil powers at work in the world. They work together and devise and plot evil schemes. That, is, that has been true since the Garden of Eden, and it continues to be true now. We are aware of that war. But, but what this verse is telling us is that is not the only place that a behind-the-scenes calculating warfare is going on. Instead, it's shining a light on our most vulnerable position, our most real and present danger, the one evil that is scheming under our very noses, and yet so oftentimes it is the very last thing that we recognize. It is the selfish passions of the flesh, our old way of living, scheming against us. You see, it is the battles that we feel the least. It is the battles that we feel the least that garner the smallest amount of our attention and focus. It's those battles, the stealth ones, that oftentimes are the deadliest. How deep can we dig entrenchments against the cultural battles of our day? And yet, how little do we guard against bitterness and complaining? How high do we build up the walls, making sure the world is kept at bay? And yet, how wide open do we prop the gates to allow the enemy of lust to slither in. How quick are we to launch a barrage, an offensive against the other side? And yet how sluggish are we to launch that same barrage against impatience towards our kids? 
You see, the threat is not only out there somewhere. The threat is in here. It's the old me. It's who I naturally am apart from the intervening grace of Jesus Christ in my life. And I can never be lulled to sleep about that. This side of heaven, I can never be lulled to sleep about that. Allowing my natural self-absorbed tendencies to remain unaccounted for and unassailed in this war is a grave threat to my spiritual health. And not feeling the danger is itself a sure sign that we're in trouble. John Owen, the brilliant 17th century British scholar, did much to help us. He worked hard to help us realize and see this subtle yet no less lethal danger, the danger of marginalizing our own sin. He writes this, Let no man think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. He who hath once once smitten a serpent, if he does not follow on his blow until it be slain, he may repent that he ever began the quarrel. And so is he who understands undertakes to deal with sin and does not pursue it constantly to the death. Do you mortify sin, he writes? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. And then he ends with, I think, a compelling case. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's the nature of this campaign, daily warfare. Do not think at any moment that you can make peace with the old you and remain unaffected. The passions of the flesh do not do truces. They are out for blood. There is no quarter. There is no compromise. There is no gentleman's agreement. It is a no-holds-barred cage match unto the death. And while we are in this earthly arena, we must never mark ourselves safe. We can't afford spiritual vacations. We can't compare ourselves to others and assume that just because we aren't wrestling with a particular type of sin that somehow we are out of the woods, it does no good to defend one flank and be overrun by the other. The end result is the same. They wage war against your soul. We are at war, church. And the more we are, more mature we are as Christians, the more aware of that reality we become. A mature Christian is not somebody who has ceased to wrestle with sin. It is one who has learned that the fight is hard, and he has learned to fight harder. We become, a mature Christian becomes less prone to go it alone. A mature Christian is one who is becoming quicker to pray and to call for help. The more, we, the more maturity we gain, the more suspicious we become of our own motives. The more eager we become to quell division. That's what maturity looks like because it recognizes this particular battle. The struggle against the passions of our flesh. And church, what the world needs right now is for Christians to see their identity and to recognize that battle and to go to war. 
to realize that Jesus paid for that sin with his own blood and the Holy Spirit is with us right now. We are not alone to help us, to help us. My eyes look to, that's how he opened this service. My eyes look to the hill. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Spirit is with us in this battle. We are not alone. And so we pull and we pry until we feel the roots start to loosen. You cannot trim back sin. You must tear it out. It is a costly fight, but it is a worthy fight. And it is our identity as Christ's church. The second way that we're called to make a difference right now is to be living beautifully amidst false accusations. To be living beautifully amidst false accusations. That's in verse 12. And here Peter begins to transition to, de- to define how our pattern of life should look. Over and over again, the New Testament is going to place claims on how we live our lives. It does that repeatedly. It's one of the things that strikes us so clearly at the beginning of this verse. This is an all-encompassing kind of way of talking about how we live our lives. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And in this hyper-individualized air that we're breathing right now, sometimes we can, we, we, we can assume that we have every right to live however we want to live. And even as Christians, we have to be careful that that way of thinking doesn't get injected into this word grace and then used the world's definition with a Christian word. Listen, we belong to Jesus and we belong to one another. That's who we are. We are his people and as citizens of heaven, we can't live like we belong on earth. The term conduct here is one of Peter's favorite ways to describe the Christian life. It is not perfection that he's talking about here, but it is a new pattern of living. It's one that takes place over the long haul. And notice again how he litters all of these commands with the spiritual stature that the church now has. He continues to litter them. If it sounds like I'm repeating myself, it's because Peter's continually adding these back in. He doesn't have to add these things, but he says, live this way before who? Gentiles living honorably in front of the Gentiles. And it's his way of bestowing on the church, including us who were born as Gentiles in the United States, the special status that Israel held. And even as Israel is meant to be a compelling witness to the outside nations by their life together, so we too now as the church are called, we're called to live personally and corporately in such a way that it reveals to a watching world the beauty of the gospel. Because what the world sees when they look at the church, especially in this moment, is what they will make of Christ. What the world sees when they look at the church, especially in 2020, is what they will make of Jesus Christ. And there is little hope for this world if the church looks a whole lot like them. But notice something here. There's a purposeful price to be paid in living differently. Look at that in the second half of verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that's the price, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the purpose. It's a purposeful price. 
Price and purpose come wrapped together in the same package. Try as we might, we can't break them up. If there's no price, there is no purpose. You can't have one without the other. Because Peter assumes that if the church takes seriously her gospel identity, her gospel identity together and begins to live that out, then she will be falsely slandered. He doesn't say if the world speaks against you as evildoers. He says when they speak against you as evildoers. Throughout the New Testament, that is the constant expectation. And we can't allow the relative reprieve that Christians in America have enjoyed to change that biblical assumption. That reprieve is the exception and it always has been. Let's be clear, the Christian community should expect to be heavily criticized. You and I should expect to be misunderstood and wrongfully accused in the public square for living out who we are in Jesus. It has been the norm since the beginning. And certainly we want to pray and work for Christian liberties. Those are good things in our society. But as we face mounting storm clouds, our conduct, our character, our way of life is going to become more and more and more important. As we go forward in this, our conduct, our character is going to become all the more vital. Because the best way to combat the charge that Christians are unreasonable is to be a people who are reasonable. To confront the the accusation that Christians are hateful is for us to love our enemies. To push back on the idea that Christians are only hypocrites is to have integrity in all of our dealings, even when it's not easy. To help people see that Christians are not stingy, we go the second mile to anyone who asks, not expecting anything in return. See, good, good conduct is not by itself enough. Up in verse 9, we saw that we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us from darkness to light. And that means along the way, we're going to have to open our mouths and boldly declare this gospel. But our way of living, our pattern of life, and especially how we relate to one another in a lot of ways, is meant to allow others the opportunity to hear when we do speak it. That's the way our pattern of life is meant to do. The epistle to Dionysius was written in the second century, and it's one of the earliest expressions of Christian apologetics that's still surviving. And the author appeals, what he appeals to in a a culture that doesn't understand Christianity because it's brand new, he appeals to Christian conduct as one of the main reasons that Dionysius should absolutely consider the claims of Christ. It's a lengthy quote, but listen to how compelling this picture is. Listen to what this author writes. He says, for the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. 
But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Church, that is us. That is us. We are a people called to be different from what this world knows and understands. We are not a community of people who have been marked off by man-made categories. We are a people who have come together by belonging to our risen Savior's kingdom. And our lives, our conduct, is meant to blow the fresh air, the fresh aromas of heaven into the stench of this age. Living rightly, conducting ourselves honorably, is about so much more than us. It isn't about being better than others, but about attracting them. It isn't meant to bring us praise, but to point to the glories of Jesus Christ. What greater purpose can we possibly enjoy in daily life than reflecting in some small way just how wonderful he is? It's easy to lose sight of that privilege, and that's why we need this reminder from Peter. The world, the world is a barren wasteland. But we know the stream of life. And it is us who have the opportunity to give them a taste. The world is a raging sea. But we know the Prince of Peace. We have met him personally. And it is through us that they can begin to hear his voice saying, Peace, be still. You see, there's a price, yes. But it is a purposeful price. In God's infinite wisdom, it may very well be the moments when the world is hurling insults at us that they most see Jesus in us. That's what happened with Stephen, isn't it? And is he not the one 
that our world needs to see the most right now. Church, there is, as this verse says, there is a day of visitation that is coming. Maybe next week, and maybe a thousand years from now, but the rays of that dawn are already beginning to shine on the horizon. It is at the door. The hour is near. The trumpet is soon to sound. Jesus Christ will soon appear in person in this world. And on that day, there will be people who are welcomed into his presence because of how we lived this week. Can you see the stature that you now have as God's chosen exiles? Can you see the privilege that belongs to us as his church? To know that our fleeting actions, these temporary, seemingly mundane decisions and words and actions matter. They matter. And they don't just matter for us, they matter for countless others. They don't just matter for temporary moments, they make an eternal difference. And if that is not enough, if that is not enough, this is staggering. We have to tread very lightly here. We have to tread very lightly here because we don't want to overstate this. And it is the holiest of holy ground. But in this verse, it's not a stretch to say that God, in a very real sense, has entrusted right now This week has entrusted the testimony about his son's, his own son's death to how we care for one another and how we live before outsiders. The very glory, the very worth of the gospel is at stake in our relationships because God chose it to be that way. That's who we are as his people. It's staggering to take in a people for his own possession. So we have to ask ourselves, when he returns, it's a great question to ask ourselves. When he returns, will others glorify Jesus because of me? And I don't mean just the embittered, dread-filled acknowledgement that every rebel is going to utter through gritted teeth, but rather a joy-filled overflowing confession that this is the one I believed in. This is the one I waited for. This is the one that my soul loves. And God redeemed us. He intends for our redeemed lives and our church to live that out before others and to make that difference. The world desperately needs a church who is willing to beautifully Live out that identity, come what may, because they desperately need a Savior that is in our midst. They desperately need the Savior that is in our midst. I was struck in this particular testimony. This came from a lady who used to be a militant enemy of Christ. She was on the fast track as a tenured professor, hated Christians. But listen to the way that the conduct of Christians she encountered changed her ability to hear God's word. She writes, Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses, 
They were on placards at gay pride marches. That Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I love were going to hell was clear as blue sky. But that is not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged and something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I, we became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we were eight together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yes, but he was full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not try to drag me to church, I I thought it was safe enough to be friends with them. But here's what their conduct over time began to do in her life. This is what she writes. I then started reading the Bible. I started reading the Bible. Because of the way they lived, I picked it up to start reading. And I started reading the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend Jay cornered me in the kitchen. And she put her large hand over mine and she said, this Bible reading is changing you. In that kitchen with tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it is true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? It was Christian conduct. It was a way of living that began to break down the walls so that she could hear God speak to her. She called on Jesus Christ and she will be among the number one day when Jesus comes back who glorifies his name. Church, we are called to make a difference right now. Remember, remember what stature you have. Remember that. And use that to go to war against our own selfish passions. And use that to live beautifully in the face of false accusations. This is the way we make a difference, embracing our identity in Jesus. It's the difference this world needs. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles 
honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess how limited our perspective is. And I confess how short my memory can be in remembering all that you have given us, the spiritual blessings that you have poured out and the place that we now hold because of Jesus Christ. Being in Christ is to inherit all things. And Lord, we have inherited a stature and identity that staggers our thinking. It's beyond anything we could have imagined if you had not told us. And this morning, we as your people, we need your help. We ask your spirit to fall in our hearts and our minds and to lift our gaze to see that truth, who we are in Jesus, and give us joy in light of that. To wait, to, to renewed energy, renewed passion, renewed vigor to go to war against our selfish passions, the things that we are so easily become lazy or indifferent to. Give us your strength to fight that battle. And Lord, help us. We feel so weak so oftentimes, especially when we feel like folks are against us. We feel so vulnerable in so many ways. Help us to turn to you and to live out who you are in us, to walk by the Spirit and to be like this couple, Ken and Floyd, love the way you loved. Father, we ask you boldly. There would be many who are not sitting in this seats this morning that we know, people that are around us, who will glorify you when Jesus returns. Use us as your people. Grant us the vision and the desire and the longing for them to know you and to glorify you. Do that work in our hearts. Propel us how we pray. And use us to glorify your Son, because Jesus is worthy. We pray this in his wonderful name.